Hey everyone, welcome to Group Therapy. I'm one of your hosts, licensed psychologist, Dr. Jessica Raven. I'm licensed psychologist, Dr. J. And I'm licensed clinical social worker, Kristen Gingrich. K10 is unfortunately out today due to an ice storm. She is safe, but we miss her greatly. Um, so today we're talking all about fictitious disorder, both imposed on self and imposed on another, which is previously known as Munchausen syndrome or Munchausen by proxy. This has been a hot topic in the media recently, so we're excited to dive deep into a discussion about it today. So settle in, take a seat, and welcome to Group Therapy. So, like I mentioned, it's a hot topic. We just had a conversation before we hit record about how we want to tread lightly about the media, but also give us a background of what inspired our discussion today. So we want to briefly touch on the Gypsy Rose Blanchard case, since that is really what has brought Munchausen by proxy or fictitious disorder imposed on another to light here recently in the media. So does anybody want to give a brief summary overview for anybody that's not familiar with her case? Yeah, I can. So the Gypsy Rose Blanchard case was an interesting case that came out of the kind of brought to light Munchausen by proxy. It obviously was happening everywhere, but very much was brought to the forefront of media. And basically what happened is Gypsy for pretty much her entire life was medically abused um, by her mother. Um, she was given procedures that she did not need. She was given diagnoses that she did not have um, well to within her teenage years. Um, and what kind of brought this to light is that she had just recently gotten out of prison after serving a partial point of her sentence for um, assisting in the murder of her mother um, in order to get away from that abusive situation. Um, what made it so interesting as well was how long that this abuse went on and went undetected in a way. This mm -hmm. went on for years and years. Um, a lot of it was said to be because of Hurricane Katrina and a loss of medical records. Um, but yeah, it was a very interesting case and is kind of taking social media by storm. Um, you know, there's been multiple documentaries. There's been a Hulu series that has come out um, that, you know, Hollywood has made on this. Um, and just a, a few weeks ago, she was released from prison early um, from her sentence and now is kind of trying to regain her life. So... Um, yeah, so that's just a little bit. Obviously, there's so much more details to that. But yeah, just a brief yeah. overview. Thank you, KBI. Um, and I think that was a really good overview because mm -hmm. as we were all talking before we hit record, really, we're a mental health podcast. And the goal is to talk about mental health, mental health disorders, and really educate on that. So we wanted to touch on it without making this a whole episode about current <laughs> events, which could happen, yes. right? I'm, I'm glad we touched on it because I think anytime there's a disorder that people aren't real familiar with, it seems to be connected to something in pop culture when it makes mm -hmm. its appearance, right? It doesn't mm -hmm. just arise out of the, the deep dives of oh. someone scrolling through a DSM or deep into the research like Jess. It comes because of real life experience. But again, yeah. I, 
it's the sensitivity of us focusing on one person and that can come at an expense versus mm-hmm. us talking in general about the disorder, symptoms, what this looks like. And so, yeah, yeah. that's why we summarize and kind of keep it moving. Yeah. And, and it's just been interesting to me, you know, over the last specifically the last two weeks, but you know, more often over the last, you know, several years as this has been brought to light, kind of the misunderstanding of fictitious, um, or Munchausen, whichever one you kind of, most people know it by Munchausen by proxy. Mm-hmm. Um, and even now, kind of in the last couple of weeks, people getting it very confused with other disorders, mm-hmm. right? We talked about health anxiety in a podcast several weeks ago and a lot of misunderstanding even around that. Um, so, mm-hmm. yeah, and I know we'll probably dive into that. But what is what is Munchausen? What is the fictitious disorder imposed on another like? Well, I have my DSM up, so you don't want me yes, to just read. Let's read the clinical criteria. There we go. So, um, the interesting thing, and we were talking about this a little bit before we hit record as well. So, there's fictitious disorder imposed on self and fictitious disorder imposed on another. I'm going to cover both briefly, mm-hmm. but if you're looking in the literature, there's a lot more information on fictitious disorder imposed on another. And by a lot more, I mean, there's still not a lot not out a lot. there. So it's understandable why people don't know. No. So if we're looking at the DSM, fictitious disorder imposed on self, uh, falsification of physical or psychological signs or symptoms or induction of injury or disease associated with identified deception. The individual presents himself or herself to others as ill, impaired, or injured. The deceptive behavior is evident even in that, and the behavior is not better explained by another mental disorder, such as a delusional disorder or another psychotic disorder. Um, And then you can specify if it's a single episode or recurrent episode, which is defined as two or more events of falsification of illness. Then we have fictitious disorder imposed on another, which is what has really been talked about in the media and more people are familiar with. So this is where we have that falsification of physical or psychological signs or symptoms or induction of injury or disease in another associated with identified deception. So we're not imposing it on ourselves. We're doing this on another person. The individual presents another individual, which is identified as the victim to others as ill, impaired, or injured. The deceptive behavior is evident even in the absence of obvious external rewards. And the behavior is not better explained by another mental disorder, such as a delusional disorder or another psychotic disorder. So as you can see, the criteria is literally the same. It just depends on is the person that's presenting as ill themselves or are they presenting another person as ill, injured, etc.? Um, there's also the single episode or recurrent episode, which once again is two or more. Excellent breakdown. As per you, reading the DSM. <laughs> just reading it right from the gospel, as it were. But I, something I really want to highlight in here, because there's a lot of differential diagnosis we'll get into, is you observe this with the absence of obvious external rewards. This is where a lot of people mm-hmm. get tripped up for external reward, a.k.a. I want a disability check, a.k.a. Mm-hmm. I want to be able to get out of work, a.k.a. I want to win a custody battle. 
you know, you name it, any external reward. That's called malingering. This is something entirely different. This is with the absence of any external rewards. And I'm spoiling the polls a little bit here, but the most obvious reason why people do this is simply for attention and sympathy. Justin, I love that you brought that up. I think another diagnosis that people may you know, question is this Munchausen by proxy? Is this, you know, health anxiety, hypochondriasis, KBI? You already mentioned we had that full episode on it. And I think a big difference in health anxiety or health illness disorder versus fictitious disorder is in health anxiety, you are worried you have some mm-hmm. type of disorder, but you are not actively causing harm to yourself, faking illness, Mm -hmm. injury, and then obviously in fictitious disorder, if it's imposed on self, you are actively doing things to yourself to fake an illness and injury. And you're not worried about having it. You're worried really that people are going to believe that you have it, for lack of a better way of saying that. I think another disorder that comes to mind that some people might question, like, is it fictitious disorder is it something else is somatization so when you have like real mental health Mm -hmm. symptoms for example but they express themselves as physical illness and once again you're actually experiencing we see that with anxiety so often absolutely Mm -hmm. um yeah and i think in both of health anxiety and somatization there's actual symptoms there that are not being caused by an external source. I think another tricky thing about fictitious disorder, because we talked about already how a lot of people don't understand it, what it is, is it is so hard to diagnose. Mm -hmm. It is so hard to catch. Like, I mean, I was reading articles and even as somebody that worked in a, has worked in a hospital, I do work in a hospital. I don't know why I just said that past tense um, and has seen very few of these cases in all my years. It is also so hard to like get confirmation that this is actually going on. Yeah, it's just really hard to collect because you want to believe people. I think that's the tough thing. I know many people have had the experience before where you kind of feel like maybe your doctor didn't hear you, your therapist didn't hear you in different ways. But to spend enough time with someone over the long haul where it's like when you're really trying to get into what does fictitious disorder feel like, like meaning from someone listening to it, is you get these inconsistencies. Yeah. And you almost get this, I'm going to use the word because it's written on a lot of medical things, even though it might sound a little judgmental. You get kind of a dramatic leaning in where when you're anxious about something, people will you'll feel the energy that you're like, they don't want this. This feels mm-hmm. very like, oh gosh, I wish you could wave a magic wand over me and take this all away. When it's like you're really trying to absorb what fictitious stories feels like, it's like a moving target where someone is really up on the medical terminology and the jargon and all these inconsistencies start appearing in a changing of story and narrative. And 
there can be kind of like new symptoms that appear after the results show like nothing. And again, having a neurological disorder, and I know other people out there who have chronic illness, you can be like, gosh, that's me. I think the thing that you don't get much of is the inconsistency in the story or sort of the changing narrative that has been documented a lot in tracking when practitioners start to lean in and be like, why is this changing mm-hmm. so much? Mm-hmm. And yeah. then a lot of times, even with that, like, right, you, the provider starts leaning in and starting questioning, which then can cause people to pull from treatment and Mm -hmm. go to a different doctor or provider and sometimes may say like oh like they weren't meeting our needs oh they weren't like they weren't helping we weren't finding and like kind of restarting that over and over again Mm -hmm. and whether whether that's adults or like kind of on self or others Mm -hmm. so you get this kind of like yeah expert shopping professional shopping another thing that i read that was interesting and kind of made sense to me is that there can be this reluctance for um and this is in both a fictitious disorder imposed on another or just fictitious disorder but a reluctance for the professional to talk to family members to talk to like loved ones to talk to other people sort of to get more information as we do a lot as professionals so it's like you get this like resistance in certain ways of like leaning out of like not wanting kind of this you know collaborating information but there's this intense sort of like i want this disorder to stick and again i can't explain that it's just not something typical when you get that feeling that somebody wants it and again i say all that to say i remember when i was suffering greatly in with my chiari disorder and i hadn't had the diagnosis but again my reporting of symptoms never changed (laughs) like Mm -hmm. the things i felt never changed the things that were observed were sort of validated like yeah we kind of see these neurological things happening then of course an mri confirmed it but you get sort of these moving symptoms the shopping and this reluctance to kind of get other people to collaborate or Mm -hmm. uh, confirm the story Mm -hmm. yeah some other things i think of because you all have brought up so many good points is you know lab tests that don't align with symptoms or even Mm. like I especially think of with fictitious disorder imposed on another you know really requesting the most invasive Mm. or unusual medical Mm. procedures no like let's do an exploratory surgery and like you're like whoa 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 we're not even anywhere close to Mm -hmm. that whether it's they're reporting things that are not but then I was also thinking people are not going to document their concern for Munchausen's because in my experience working in a hospital, even when things are slightly off, there is a resistance of like physicians to document like, oh, like they might document inconsistencies or they might document, you know, was about to discharge and symptoms suddenly got worse, but they're not going to document, I suspect, medical abuse or I suspect, you know, a fictitious disorder because that, I mean, it's a highly stigmatized and it's also like a big jump. Justin, like you were saying, you know, you want to hope the best in people. And sometimes, you know, medicine is 
is an art and a science. It's not like this perfect calculation. So you don't want to jump to like, oh, this doesn't make sense. They must be faking it. You want to say, this doesn't make sense. Let's run more tests or do things. So it is this like delicate balance on the end of a professional as well. Well, I think it's, I think it's hard because like, again, as a professional, right, you have someone coming to you with symptoms. Well, if you don't believe them to a point, you can cause harm by not believing them. But also again, like, you know, there is on the other end of still as justice says, getting curious and leaning in and kind of asking those questions or, you know, after years of paperwork that start to kind of put pieces of a puzzle together, right? Two hospital records aren't going to make red flags unless there's very specific reasons. But like for specifically like Munchausen or like it's not going to raise those flags, but you have seven, eight, 12 records that start to come together that, you know, now in modern day is much more accessible than maybe it was 20 years ago um, that that is like that's going to play its own role and make and I think make kind of it easier to raise those red flags in present day than maybe it was you know 20 years ago mm-hmm. yeah I think another aspect that has been mentioned is the legality issue like mm-hmm. it's easy as a professional like we get taught over and over again like CYA that's a professional term for cover your ass but like you got threatened so much as you go through grad school like here are the infinity ways that you're going to get sued and you're like let me just opt out of this profession immediately <laughs> yep. but in all seriousness if you're in the health profession you know and you're like yes obviously but if you're not in the health profession I don't think people realize how even with the best intentions people will sue you Mm -hmm. and think about the risk involved if you were putting together the constellation that wow this is feeling like fictitious disorder Mm -hmm. there is such a risk there in kind of leaning that way into believing like this story keeps changing none of the symptoms sort of line up with the tests Um, you know, it's not confirmed by other people. There's evidence that they shop around or go to like putting that all together takes so much time and energy in a system in the United States that's overwhelmed and people will sue at the drop of a hat. Yo, Mm -hmm. I can get it. And I'm just some lowly psychologist over here. Like I can understand why it's really hard to catch and why you would lean away from that label. Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Well, and then you think of, you know, some of the like steps, quote unquote, to identify it because it is so hard to identify. We just talked about a lot of like red flags, but at least in a hospital setting, you know, it's separating the, especially if it's imposed on another, if it's fictitious disorder imposed on self, that's a whole sure. other range. But if it's imposed on another, it's like separating the caregiver from their mm. child to see if the symptoms go away. Mm. Okay. Most of, most of victims of fictitious disorder imposed on another are young children, yes. babies, yeah. preschool age, trying to convince 
Mm. or give parents a good reason to be separated from their infant or toddler child Mm. in a hospital is very difficult, right? Like you can encourage all the self-care in the world, but them being gone for an hour isn't suddenly going to get rid of the symptoms. Like you need them gone for days. Another way is getting video surveillance in, which there's a whole thing about is that legal, ethical, all these things. I know in our hospital, we have like telesitters that we'll use for certain disorders. If somebody's like a fall risk or like our our EKGs for seizures have cameras on them and things like that. But you also need a good reason to put a camera in the room to try Mm -hmm. to catch somebody. And are people going to do things in front of a, like, so there's so many, I think of those steps too, of ways to kind of confirm it is also very difficult because these people aren't necessarily going to admit it. If you're like, Hey, we think you're doing something to fake your symptoms. Like people would be offended. Understandably, like whether there's fictitious disorder or not offended, lose that trust, go seek healthcare elsewhere. Well, and then you, you know, you're dealing with rights and imposing on Mm -hmm. rights. And do you have enough, do you have enough backing you to help like that could justify breaking those rights and that it does get really, really sticky. And, and I know it's talked a lot about like with young, with young kids specifically around this disorder is being coached. Like imagine Mm -hmm. you were raised your entire childhood thinking that you had a specific illness, mm-hmm. but you've never at, you never actually had that illness. Mm-hmm. Like there are kids out there who, who believe that they truly have cancer, mm-hmm. but have never had a cancer cell in their body. Yep. And you know, it, that's also a hard piece is like even getting kids alone do they even know what the truth is? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's part of me, and if this feels like speculation, that's fine. This is me sort of talking out loud. There's part of me as technology increases, I think it's going to be harder for this okay. to happen, quite simply. Of like with technology being able to detect cancer or re- irregularities quicker and easier it's sort of easier for us to lean on these great diagnostic abilities to be like, this just doesn't add up. Like it's Mm -hmm. just not there. And unfortunately throughout history and going back just a few decades, you know, I think people didn't rely as much on these great exams tests that were available to look at what is the objective data here. And again, really hard balance to strike when someone's reporting one thing and the objective data is just kind of showing another. And that's why another kind of sign is that people's symptoms, especially in fictitious disorder imposed on another, people's symptoms rapidly improve in the presence of somebody in healthcare, but as soon as they're gone, it's like they deteriorate so quickly. And you're trying to be like, why were they great and stable for three days in the hospital? And now, you know, the mom or caregivers reporting once again, they're, they're terrible again. They can't eat and X, Y, or Z. So I just think as technology increases, I think it, this disorder would be almost quicker to discover. And yet, you still worry about what we've alluded to a bunch of times in this is, yeah, there are a lot of symptoms that are very real for people that are sort of like, what is this? 
but the feeling and energy isn't like I want this or I want this label. It's more of like I'm having these symptoms. What can you do to make these go away? Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think that's what makes it like the way that you just worded that, like we were, you were talking earlier about kind of the difference between someone seeking a diagnosis and going to therapy because they're having these symptoms. Right. And I think the difference is, is that when you want to sum it up and if anybody disagrees, that's fine. But like a lot of times people are seeking an explanation mm. and with, with this kind of fictitious, they're, they're seeking a diagnosis and I think that, and while an explanation comes with a diagnosis, but I think that that's kind of where that energy is different. And it, it would feel continuous too. It would yeah. be like, they got this diagnosis. It's all done here. It's like the constant lean in of mm-hmm. like just said, of like wanting the most, you know, invasive things, surgeries, like of course, Again, in the Gypsy Rose case, a feeding tube was put in. So it's like you think about all the layers of where this can go. Um, It is very scary to think about. Mm -hmm. And I think another aspect to why this is so difficult to identify is, you know, if we look at the course of it, it's usually intermittent. That's why, Mm -hmm. like we said at the beginning, the, the Gypsy Rose Blanchard case was so unique in that it was so long-term, so many disorders, Mm -hmm. things like that. And also from what I read and the very few cases I've seen in the hospital, it usually starts after a true hospitalization or medical illness of some sort. So there was something there Mm -hmm. (laughs) at some Mm -hmm. point, whether it's on yourself or your child was hospitalized and then you as the caretaker develop fictitious disorder imposed on another things like that. So that also makes it murky and difficult to identify as well. But I agree with you, Justin, I think as technology advances, we'll be able to identify this earlier if healthcare providers have a willingness to like do the work, like we said, but I think the idea of preventing it, I don't, I don't know if that can truly ever happen. We can prevent more severe long-term consequences by catching it earlier, Mm -hmm. but actually preventing fictitious disorder imposed on self or another. I don't know. Maybe I'm pessimistic. I feel like that would be extremely hard given just what it is. Right. Yeah. And I think you labeled something that was kind of interesting in there, which is, that often this happens after some sort of hospital stay where people are being shown that having some sort of medical thing go wrong, that you're getting a level of attention and sympathy Mm -hmm. that maybe someone hasn't gotten in their life otherwise. Mm -hmm. And that's where, again, we always hope on this podcast that you, that we honor these disorders in ways that are filled with curiosity and compassion. Mm -hmm. But when you really let that sink in, in fictitious disorder, whether it's the disorder or imposed on another, think of someone doing this where their whole psyche is just wanting sympathy and attention. That's when your mind expands of what has that person's life been like Mm -hmm. where they're seeking attention in sympathy 
And it's like, I hope your mind expands to all the episodes we've had here about trauma, CPTSD, and otherwise. But I think, especially if you're trying to, a lot of people are like, I can't believe someone's like this. It's like, well, again, if you're learning things from this podcast, you kind of expand and start thinking about what has this person's life been like mm-hmm. up to this. Yeah. I love that you brought that up, Justin, because I do think about it. And I, I know the term attention seeking has such like a negative connotation, but like whether it's you're seeking attention, sympathy, you're, you're trying to get some type of need right met right um whether it's fictitious disorder imposed on self or another and like you know they don't know the cause for fictitious disorder um and when i was doing research you know we do know there's some correlates of it so especially like imposed on other childhood abuse or neglect um we already talked about having a medical illness or frequent illnesses as a child um, exactly what you said, Justin, past experiences during a time of sickness, recognizing you get attention, liking how that feels, because maybe you don't get attention in other aspects of your life. Parent-child conflict, low self-esteem, like there's so many things like this is not just something that someone wakes up one day and like, hey, I think I'm going to exactly right. fake this illness or injury or actively do things that are harming my child to Mm -hmm. look like a disorder. Like it doesn't happen Mm -hmm. overnight. And I can totally see from the outside how people are like, how, how would they do this? And that's what I've seen a lot personally with this coverage in the media. Um, And, you know, we won't dive into it, but not necessarily villain. Like it's still at the end of the day, a disorder. Right. Um, it doesn't mean what the people are doing are right by any means, but it's still a mental health condition. Exactly. Exactly. I'm glad that you mentioned that part of it because I think that's where people can get kind of mixed up in certain ways of like in any number of disorders, we can harm other people unconsciously, sometimes intentionally or whatever. We've talked about this in antisocial personality disorder. We talked about this with narcissistic personality disorder. So again, it doesn't justify behaviors, but it is in the constellation of what is going on for this person within the disorder. Well, it always goes back to it can explain it. It doesn't excuse it. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I also wanted to mention, because it hasn't come up yet in the conversation, because we've led from the Gypsy Rose standpoint or whatever. It's not just in, when we talk about fictitious disorder imposed on another, it's not just towards children. It's mm-hmm. Also, oh, yeah. could be someone who's elderly. It could also be an individual with a disability. It's kind of any protected population person um, where you could see this happening. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, another thing I wanted to bring up, I'm glad you brought that up, is most often it's women, but it's not all women as well. About two-thirds of perpetrators of fictitious disorder, whether imposed on self or other, are women. Um, interestingly, I also found doing research that many of them possess a medical or nursing background, which makes sense Interesting. given 
the, the context of things. Um, and yeah, I found another statistic that said 30% of individuals that have fictitious disorder imposed on another had their own history of child maltreatment or abuse. Mm. So learned behavior, once again, not an excuse by any means, yeah. but an explanation of kind of like what you said, KBI, in a different vein, going back, if a child's been told they have cancer their whole life, then they're separate. They don't know any different. And we yeah. see that with abuse. Like, even if you know it's bad, that's a learned behavior. That's like how you learn to be treated. So you're going to repeat those cycles unless you get help and intervention. Yeah. And I'm just so interested in that data because I've never worked with anybody who struggled or was a victim of this sort. I've worked with a lot of like the health anxiety aspect Mm -hmm. of it. But I also wonder, like you say two thirds are women and I, and I wonder like how much of that is the caregiver aspect too. And that, Mm -hmm. and again, it can go back to trauma. It can go back to all of that, but like that, when we talk about the, the attention and peace like that, like that need to be needed mm-hmm. and creating like that I'm creating kind of this environment where I am needed and that mm-hmm. my child will never leave me like depend, whatever that may be again, not all cases, all of that, but it just got me thinking when you said two thirds women, I just think of like the stare, like the stereotypes um, of the caregiving and and all of that, which is just very interesting. Mm-hmm. I love that you brought that up because another thing we haven't mentioned, especially with fictitious disorder imposed on another, the the adult, usually a parent, usually a mother, seems very loving and caring and wants what's best for their child. Mm-hmm. And in many ways they do. And I know that it can sound kind of weird to say, given everything we just shared, but I love that you brought that up KBI because it is that caregiving role. Um, you brought up like dependence. And another thing I read talked about how many people with b- both types of fictitious disorder imposed on self or imposed on other tend to lose a lot of family and isolate themselves. So if you're thinking mm-hmm. of fictitious disorder imposed on another, if you have tumultuous relationships with other family, feel isolated, have cut them off, they've cut you off and you have this child and you have that need to be loved and accepted. It's a, it is a way of like exactly what you said, having this child be dependent on you and in many ways give you purpose. Like your purpose is to care for them. And how are you going to care for them longer? Well, if they're sick and continue to need me, um, I don't know. It's just so interesting, like considering all these different perspectives and thought processes. Absolutely. And, it, and again, it's not, it's a very generalized, I think, making sure that our group members realize that a lot of this is that generalization, um, that every, every situation is different. Um, but yeah, I mean, some are more severe than others. Like we said, like some have gone on for years and years and years without ever being caught. And, you know, sometimes it is caught within a, within a first couple years or months. Um, but it is, it is hard. Yeah. It makes me think how treatments, when you think about for the individual with the fictitious disorder versus the victim of, you know, someone 
with a uh, fictitious disorder imposed on another, like in this case, the Gypsy Rose. It's interesting thinking that it's almost more straightforward what the treatments look like for someone who's a victim because mm-hmm. oh, absolutely fall under what we already know and have tons of literature on that it often gets put into trauma, CPTSD, mm-hmm. in recognition of all the things you were told, the lies, you know, in some cases, manipulation and how you were treated, ignored, and how this impacts your self-esteem, your self-view, the worldview. I mean, this is all, well, we know how this stuff sort of plays out in understanding trauma. It's a lot more complicated when you're trying to treat the person with the fictitious disorder. Yeah. (laughs) No, I I agree with that, Justin. And one thing that we didn't explicitly say, but I hope came out that I wanted to clarify before we jump into treatments is when you're diagnosed with fictitious disorder imposed on another, it's the person engaging in the behaviors that's diagnosed with it, not the child. Now the child was probably get, or vulnerable adult is probably going to be diagnosed with trauma or all these other things. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Like Justin right. said, but, but yeah, I mean, I don't know what you all found, but I found close to nothing. <laughs> on right. No treatments. Mm-hmm. Like everything was like psychotherapy. But then if you look into mm-hmm. what types of psychotherapy, like there's not, really viable psychological treatments um, for perpetrators, whether uh, fictitious disorder imposed on self or other. A a big barrier is many people don't admit that they have it or don't recognize. They recognize their behavior. They know what they've done. They don't recognize it as a disorder or problem. Um, You know, I I had to laugh because I feel like this is everything. I saw one thing that said CBT and I was like, of course, that's going to be in there. Then I did think about it. I was like, you know, if your cognitive distortions challenging that or core beliefs, um, mm. you know, trauma, if trauma is identified, you can do some trauma therapy. Um, I saw something called the accepts model. I'd never heard of it before, um, but it's a model, a model and approach to working. It's not necessarily like a therapy. So acknowledge, you know, deceptive behaviors, unhealthy coping mechanisms, um, identify healthy coping skills, try to take on, you know, child or the abused perspective. But even in that, it was like, so in this stage, if trauma is identified, do some trauma therapy in this stage. If, you know, you need to do empathy work, mentalization based therapy. So it was more of a model. And the only other thing I found was for fictitious disorder imposed on self family therapy. If family is still Mm -hmm. involved, maybe helpful from a standpoint of not reinforcing behaviors, but I don't know if you all found anything groundbreaking. The, the structure of what you're naming, though, makes sense to me. And it would feel similar to the approach of a number of personality disorders, meaning at the ground level basic, it's like you have to get someone to own the behavior, which it's sort of classic psychotherapy or often said in you know addiction treatment. But in this case, there isn't going to be much gain. Maybe if the person yeah. had trauma history, 
maybe if the person had other things to work on, you know, could it possibly like working on other things help limit this behavior? Sure. And we know someone can own the behavior and even own the diagnostic label. Oh, I think that look would be far more promising. But what we know is true with a lot of personality disorders that that's a really hard bridge to cross. That in some disorders, people are very reluctant and sort of baked within the disorder itself that it's hard to own that this is the pattern of behavior that you're stuck in and how it's impacting you and others. And I also wonder if some treatment just never happens and it is just that like certain pieces like happen, like maybe a parent loses custody or that Mm -hmm. child grows up and starts being able to be honest and they like, I also wonder if like there's not as much of that because a things aren't caught or they don't reach. Like, I also wonder how much this happens that doesn't reach a level that, you know, like we see like with Gypsy Rose and Mm -hmm. some of these bigger pieces of, um, you know, there are a lot of other stories that have come out of this that don't reach that level of severe, severe harm Mm -hmm. to the children or another adult. Um, And so I also wonder how much of that, it just goes on like undetected and it, because eventually if you're doing this specifically to your child, your child's going to reach an age, either they begin to speak up or they leave the home or mm-hmm. gets to a point where puzzle pieces, like we've talked about, fill in and then you get barriers placed by your providers and then it is documented in things like medical charts. And so I don't know. I wonder what role that plays as well. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. No, there's a there's a lot of pieces, and yeah, exactly like you, the first thing you said. Does a parent lose custody? Does you know, there, there's so many factors. Is it caught after a one time thing, yeah. and then and I don't know because there's not a lot of data. Like I would love data on you know outcomes of if it was like a one time instance versus repeated. If it was like. I don't know, a certain disorder versus another. I don't know. We just need more research, I think, is what the conclusion is. Well, and like you said, with research, that would require people to come forward and talk about it. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's probably plenty of documented cases. The reality is, is due to confidentiality, like, can those cases be talked about? Mm-hmm. And unless people are, you know, I'm looking at the list right now of just notables. And the thing is, is we, all we hear is the notables right. because it's so-and-so was charged with like a child abuse. So-and-so was charged with murder. Um, I didn't know this, but Eminem, the rapper mm-hmm. was also a victim of yep. whether it was actual di- but I don't know, but like, his mom kind of say, but again, like as an adult coming out and talking about that himself. Mm-hmm. Just to mention another layer here is like, if this is more often occurring and again, not only occurring, but more often occurring in the medical setting, something I was reading through the Cleveland Clinic's website was it, the rarity that somebody takes the recommended psychological or psychiatric evaluation or referral is mm-hmm. low. And 
again, if you're kind of conceptualizing this disorder in all the ways, how in the world is that not surprising that they would be reluctant or resistant to go down a realm where maybe some of this gets brought to the light that you're, again, you're making this up. So if you're not even taking the referral to talk to a therapist or a psychologist and kind of get to the bottom of it, uh, I can't imagine how hard it would be in a neurologist's office or, uh, you know, name your specialty doctor's office to sort of get to the bottom of it. There's, it, there's so much nuance and difficulty here and kind of nailing it down. And it also pokes holes in the system that we have as well. Mm-hmm. I don't have a good transition. I left you with nothing. I know. Yeah. I know. Um, I was just going to be like, you know what? Never has holes poked in it. Jess's Google Scholar shorts. Oh, just, well, thank she's you. Solid. She's solid. She's solid in finding them. So as we've already highlighted the lack of research, um, the question I'm posing to you all this week is what's the likelihood I actually found a randomized control trial or cross-sectional study on fictitious disorder or fictitious disorder imposed on another? I, I literally, in my study, I found one from 1995. So I don't know. Damn. Correct. They're like exactly to your point, KBI. What we know of is based on case studies. So for the first time ever, I'm going to review a case study because like there is it's either like this is what the disorder is or especially new ones. Mm-hmm. But I thought a case report would be cool because exactly like KBI you've brought up we only hear about the notable ones. We hear about the ones that ended up in death or like related to murder, things like that. We don't hear about like the, I don't want to say the day-to-day cases, but the ones that are more frequently seen in the hospital. So I'm going to review a case study, hopefully for individuals listening. This is interesting to you all background, very brief. A case study is just a, report on a single individual. So obviously there's a lot of limitations, but I think for the purpose of this episode, this was interesting. So this case study was on an 18 month old female who was referred to a hospital for further investigation and management of her recurrent hypoglycemia attack. So hypo, so low blood sugar. Um, So relevant medical history included a two month NICU stay at birth, normal development until nine months of age when she started to have multiple seizure episodes. However, her older brother had a history of epilepsy, so not too out there. At 13 months, the mother started to notice that her daughter was lazy and sleeping for a long time, and she experienced her first episode of hypoglycemia in the form of lethargy, drowsiness, and irritability. So I'm not going to get into all the medical details, but the child was hospitalized on multiple occasions, including a PICU stay with low blood sugar, um, around 30 MG over DL, but normal range is 70 to 150 for anybody that needs to know. Um, And then finally was transferred to the hospital where this case study was the referral notes showed high insulin, low glucose and absence C peptide values. And this was confirmed over and over and over again on multiple labs. So going back to something we already talked about, okay, labs aren't necessarily matching up with hypoglycemia. 
With regard to red flags, they noted um, inconsistency in the mother's report with patient history. So we highlighted that physical examination revealed obvious swelling on the upper and lateral aspect of her right side muscle with needle insertion marks, um, as well as needle marks on her deltoids. The nurse noticed that the child was calm and not crying every time they pricked her with a needle. Uh, the mother was insisting on a pancreatomy rather than going for a PET scan. And hypoglycemia attacks only occurred when the mother was around. So the decision was made to keep the patient under close observation with no accompanying family members. And during that time, she had no hypoglycemia attacks. Um, so they ended up calling social protective services. The mother was confronted. And I picked this article because this mother actually admitted that she was giving her daughter mm -hmm. insulin injections for more than six months to induce symptoms. Um, and we talked about what's the meet sympathy and attention, right? Intention behind her actions was to get the attention of her ex-husband. They recently divorced. And so she was trying to get attention by harming their child. Um, so the patient was diagnosed with what they called caregiver fabricated illness. This was in Saudi Arabia, um, which was in this case, hypoglycemia discharged in good health with her maternal grandmother after 19 days and under social protective services. But yeah. I'm just going to own this heavy to listen to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It just... Maybe it's on me having harm OCD. It gets a little triggering for me in different ways. It's just, just I, I, probably for anybody. You just have a high level of sympathy, and there's just a lot of sadness and obvious pain involved. And again, very interesting. And we talk all the time, like some people are like, if it's not an RCT, it doesn't matter. Case any, these are all forms of evidence. So that case yeah. study, again, it's so intricate and you get the layers and you get the background and you get the outcome. There's a lot to be learned from case studies, especially when you, like, how do you set up RCTs with this? It, it'd be very hard. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. that design seems like almost nonsensical. Yeah. 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 I mean, I read a lot of case studies and I was trying to choose which one, but like I said, one reason I went back to this one, I liked how it was laid out, but two, it was the only one I read where the parent actually admitted to doing something. All the other ones were like, we had all this evidence, child was separated. Um, and it also hit on a lot of the things we already covered about like what to look for. Um, but even things like, you know, the child is calm and not crying every time they prick her. Mm. That might not be a red flag, but then if you think about what a 14 month old, it's like, this is interesting. Like usually, I mean, adults may flick too. I'm not going to just in you. I know K10's not here <laughs> to you and your needle phobias, but oh. things like that, that people might not think about but you know going for the more invasive scans only happening around like all the things we mentioned but like we also mentioned you have to put all of those things together too because one of those things alone may not be a red flag mm -hmm. yeah just makes it all the more complicated to to get into i'm glad you brought in a case study i have yeah. a feeling it won't be might have been the first time but it won't be the last time so <laughs> not, the last. not the last time we're doing polls 
love them. We are so interested in your responses. You know, sometimes the questions that get asked in the polls are interesting. Sometimes they're just scraping the barrel. I'll let you all decide that I had the polls. So maybe we'll impose a no judgment zone. But first question I asked, I was just curious because we got our listeners here intellectually and knowledge on the topic are way above average. Mm-hmm. They are in full. We have an informed listener group. We're lucky enough to have professionals listen, but our people, they know they're up mm. on it. So I'm just curious of like prior to the story of Gypsy Rose releasing, had you even heard of fictitious disorder? It was just a simple yes or no. I think a lot of people had. Like just with just with social media, yeah. I'd say ninety two percent. This made me feel pretty good because I, I even said before we started uh, recording this, I hadn't heard a lot about Gypsy Rose. Mm-hmm. Like I wasn't up on it. As you know, we're all ignorant on something like I, this. Had, this whole case had missed me until recently. Mm-hmm. It, for our listeners, remember this is kind of low. This was only sixty nine percent yes. 31% no. Oh, that's a, that's a good never, chunk, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think in this group, you'd expect the majority, but still 31% never heard of it. So we hope you're, uh-huh. you're learning something here today. Um, what is the most common reasons parents or caregivers inflict fictitious disorder onto their children? So the options were monetary gain, insurance fraud, attention sympathy, or custody legal. I think our group members got it with attention sympathy. Mm-hmm. They knew. 85% were up on it. Oh, wow. They, they already done knew. All are warning signs of fictitious disorder opposed by another, except frequent hospitalizations, reported symptoms not observed by doctor, chemicals found in blood, stool, or urine, or diagnosis confirmed by MRI, CAT scan, etc. The last one. They knew it. 81% knew. 8% of people said uh, reported symptoms not observed by doctor. They knew. And of course, I asked, fictitious disorder imposed by another is only applied in cases that involve children, true, false, or I'd like to ask Siri. False, but I feel like we got a good number of people saying they want to ask Siri. I voted for I want to ask Siri. No. Do, do y'all ask Siri these types of questions? Because I ask Alexa the hard hitters, but Siri, I don't know why. I just don't. I just don't go to Siri for the hard hitters. We're a Google household. I'll ask Google for um, the harder questions. Siri's like, how do you spell <laughs> like a word that I don't know how to spell? Siri will just give me an article. I feel like for me, the series like as she's listening. She like listened. She like started up. I was like, no, (laughs) don't start up. We're okay for now. Yeah, we got fifteen percent of people wanted to ask Siri. Why not? Why not? Hmm. Ask the AI. But eighty percent of people knew that was false. Yo, thanks as always. Well, let's bring it back down to earth. Okay. (laughs) And let's do the group member questions. Love it. Let's bring it back down. As always, we love all of your questions that you guys send in. This week, we had some really good ones. Um, 
So the first one is from Ryan from Arizona. I've seen this before as an RN in a hospital and it caused such a controversy within our team. What are some ways to be able to communicate the concerns you're seeing when the patient's caregiver or parent is extremely good at shifting attention to their actions? Now, granted, you know, we're not doctors, but we are providers. So how like even even like in our therapy room, like how how would you guys go about like having that conversation? So it's interesting how you took it because like I took it as communicate concerns like among providers <laughs> but I like true. how you, true I like how you said it too so my gut was like when it's communicating concerns b- between providers is having a we call them MDTs at my hospital a multidisciplinary mm. team meeting to like where you get all the specialties involved and being like hey what do you see what's like and everybody yeah. gets on the same page with regard to what you brought up KBI, which I think is a really good point is I'm a fan of like validating while also showing the evidence like, Hey, mm-hmm. I know you're reporting X, Y, and Z symptoms. I can tell you're really concerned. These lab results are not showing this. The CT scan is not mm-hmm. showing this, you know, we've ruled out X, Y, and Z. And even using Justin's line, get curious, like ask them, like, is there anything you're not telling us? Is there anything else you think could be contributing and just kind of see where they go. But I think approaching it with facts and evidence while also being compassionate. Cause like we already highlighted, if you're like, Hey, this doesn't add up. We think you're faking it there. You've lost all trust. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm with you. I think this is where the nuance of language <laughs> comes into play, where we go through a lot of kind of training on this, of like counseling skills. But I think asking them, like, I'm hearing, again, a heavy concern that it might be X, you know, whatever that disorder or diagnosis that they feel like they're seeking. You just ask them out of curiosity. It's like, you know, going over the symptoms that are here, it, it doesn't seem to lean that way. Is there a reason why you think, or is there a reason that it, you feel pulled that it is this disorder? And again, I think this is where the nuance can kind of come out, where if it's someone with health anxiety or something like that, you're going to hear, I'm scared it is. I hope it's mm-hmm. not. I don't want it to be. I want this away from me. And so, again, it's this, I know I keep going to the energy thing, but it's like this, you're trying to get it away from you versus why someone's feeling like I want this on me, pulled towards me. And again, sometimes people just want an answer because they want the symptoms gone. But if you're getting a feeling that the person doesn't want the symptoms gone and they want this diagnosis and nothing's sort of lining up, this is painting a different picture than, again, what is typical. Mm-hmm. I love the way you explain the pull versus the push away, Justin. I think yeah. it gives a good visualization. And also, like, I can feel the energy. Like, no, I yeah. want this versus, like, no, I'm terrified I have this. Right. Well, and I, I think it cre- I think I think it just creates that difference because mm-hmm. it does like, you know, it does share traits with health anxiety. It does share traits with hypochondria. It, it shares those pieces. Mm-hmm. But the reality is, is that they are so different as well. Right. We talk about 
kind of this mental health sphere being just one big Venn diagram. And Mm -hmm. I don't, I, I don't, I definitely don't want group members or, you know, people leaving this and thinking like, oh, my, for example, my parent has health anxiety over me. Oh, they have to have fictitious mm-hmm. disorder imposed on another or my, like that's, that it's definitely that very much that difference piece. Jen from New Jersey and Sensi from Arkansas. One of the things we didn't talk about is like, how common is this? based off of the data that like what is what's the common data you know what is i know no justin do you want to take this or do you uh, do you want me to i, was I know we talked about me and you yeah had just talked about this before we started recording so i was just gonna be like well jess we just had a back and forth about this so yeah so um as we've talked about it's really hard to identify so the only number that they have out there is less than one percent in healthcare like what does that mean? yeah exactly <laughs> like <laughs> what does that even mean because yeah. and and those are of the known identified ones and even we didn't even really get into that but i think this is a good time to bring it up like to actually get a diagnosis of fictitious disorder, especially fictitious disorder imposed on another, there has to be like a ton of evidence or an admittance to it. And we've already talked about how most individuals do not admit to it. So then you either need like videotaped evidence or somebody caught someone doing something to the person for it to happen. So even going back to the Gypsy Rose case, um, we don't actually know if her mother had it. I mean, there's enough evidence to substantiate she has, but like that diagnosis came from a news report from the lawyer saying like, based on this evidence, she has it. Like nobody evaluated her mother because she died. She was murdered. So like in so we can talk about it, but like actually diagnosing this mm. is extremely difficult because usually it's based on circumstantial evidence. Yeah. Well, it's, so it's, it's probably so actually more common, but <laughs> right. yeah. those are the numbers. Sorry. Kate, well, it's so that. interesting. Just reading this number. It says incident rates estimate to range from one to 28 million children. Are victims like that's such a big like one to twenty eight million children are victims. I mean, they're trying to be very inclusive of all possible numbers. Well, and and again, I think that also goes back to right the range mm-hmm. of this as well. I think can be so vastly different. Like the thing is, is that it can be kind of this fictitious disorder of just. Um, something much low level i can't think of low level at this time or it could be to the point where my child is getting chemotherapy treatment because i've convinced a doctor that they have cancer Mm -hmm. even though there's not a cancer cell in their in their body and so you know i think that's what also makes it so kind of variable is because of that big kind of range that it possibly could be. Um, Rose from California. If someone has had or ha- has or had fictitious disorder themselves, does that put them at higher risk to have fictitious disorder imposed on by another? 
Can we just copy and paste what we said at the start? Me and Jess talked about this before we started recording. <laughs> and I'm going to default to Jess because she uncovered the answer. Well, yeah, because we were talking about it. Um, and so I did find something that said individuals with fictitious disorder imposed on self are at higher risk for developing fictitious disorder imposed on another. So in a series of cases, caregivers escalated to inducing or presenting false symptoms upon their children or people in their care when they no longer felt satisfied uh, by the perceived rewards of fictitious disorder imposed on self. So when they were no longer getting the attention or sympathy, more likely to impose on another. Conversely, perpetrators of fictitious disorder imposed on another were found to likely engage in fictitious disorder imposed on self when separate Separated from their victims. So that was the one like paragraph I found out of all the hours of research I did for this. So mm. in, in, in short, yes. But like, I feel like that makes sense in many ways. If we go back to like Justin, what you so greatly brought up earlier um, when we talked about like needs being met and like sympathy, if you're not getting a need met, in one way, you're going to seek out another way to get that need. Right. Megan from Michigan and Jenna from Ohio asks, basically, has any have any of you guys ever treated anyone with um, fictitious disorder? I have not. I've definitely treated like the health anxiety part of a, like a parent to a child, all of that. But I have, I have not. First, want to just acknowledge you. Uh, brought up two people from states that rival each other, the Michigan-Ohio combo. I we don't have know. But... In common, then we do a part, so maybe this is a peace treaty moment. It's absolutely not. Congratulations, Michigan, for winning the national championship. There we go. I knew I you were going to bring that up. I, I then, said it. I said it be like, uh, yay sports. Yay sports. Yay sports. sports. Um, I, I have never treated someone with fictitious disorder either. From as confident as I can be about that statement, I believe, um, and there's a lot of evidence for, I've treated victims of where there was certainly a lot of evidence. Um, again, being in sort of the gypsy rose part of it, being a victim of someone with fictitious disorder. So I don't know. What about you, Jess? You're in the hospital setting. So this, I, I don't want to say it's complicated, but it is. So the, we have definitely seen fictitious disorder imposed on another in the hospital. Mm. However, the, the couple cases I can think of that have been confirmed were on infants. So I am not treating them, right. but you know, it, people on my, cause I work on the palliative care team. People were involved. We talk about cases, but I'm not treating an infant. I have treated a fictitious disorder. However, the caveat to that is we did not know it was fictitious disorder at the time I was treating her. So mm. without going into too many details, because I don't want to break patient confidentiality was in our hospital was treating her for this unknown illness, couldn't find answers, all these symptoms, things like that. We transferred her to a more specialized, larger hospital. And that's where they discovered it was 
fictitious disorder. So I wasn't treating the fictitious disorder. I was treating somebody with it, but at the time did not know that's what it was. Um, but like we said, like, it's so hard to treat. I yeah. will say what I have treated more going back to like victims of not necessarily uh, fictitious disorder imposed on another, but other types of like medical abuse or neglect that wouldn't necessarily classify as fictitious disorder imposed on another. Um, but some similarities I can think about with that kind of like KBI you brought up already is just, you know, questioning your reality or like we talked about how the caregivers that are usually engaging these behaviors are very loving, caring, care for their children. So working on, you know, those, those bonds, you know, I, I can recognize my parent did this horrible thing to me and I still love them or I have been dependent on them my whole life. So I can, it's not necessarily the treatment of a, a victim of um, fictitious disorder imposed on another, but like what I imagine similarities of treating the victim, but actual someone with the disorder, I've seen it, but I haven't treated or I've seen it and didn't know it was it at the time. Yeah. You saying that statement makes me walk back the statement I've said, because you can't confirm like in the uh, people I've worked with, it could have been that their parents were malingering. It could have been that their parents in reality was health anxiety. So there was never confirmation. And again, a lot of times when you're helping someone who's come from parents where it could be fictitious disorder imposed on another, it could be malingering. It could be health anxiety. The treatments look similar, right? They're all in this realm of like, what were you told? Like, you know, what was validated for you? What was imposed upon you? How do you make sense of your body, your symptoms and like own what you feel now? Like there's a lot of unknown that goes in when you don't get to talk as a psychotherapist, you don't get to talk to people's families, mothers, fathers, exes. A lot of times we wish we could, we wish we could have those conversations to illuminate things, but you go yeah. off of the report of the person in front of you and you do your best to help them. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, it made me walk back a little bit what I'd said before, cause it was never confirmed, but mm -hmm. it was a possibility. Yeah. Ask, how do, how do these kind of people do in relationships? How do I know if my partner has been doing this? And I guess like, my question is like, are you talking about like imposing it like on you as the person? Because I think like, again, as adult to adult, that's kind of, I would think like, it's kind of hard to do unless you're in that vulnerable state in a way. Um, now, again, if you think if your partner has a child and you believe that they might be doing that, that, that might be a very different conversation. Yeah. I'm, I'm like drawing a picture, right? <laughs> we don't, so we're not, we don't know the story necessarily, but I can almost yeah. imagine within a psychological way, someone projecting, um, maybe even psychological symptoms like on someone mm -hmm. uh, or it could be like cognitive of like saying like, Oh, your memory is really bad. I'm thinking of things that might happen in abusive relationships as far as like, yeah. Gaslighting is concerned, but I just thought of, I was like, kind of gaslighting, like you're acting crazy, yeah. right? Like that, that comment, like you're acting crazy right now. Like, 
I mean, and conceivably that could happen. Like it's yeah. not out of the realm, but the hard thing is getting at the core. Like what is the motive of this person doing it? Again, mm-hmm. is there some sort of gain they're getting from this? Is it for, as we said a million times this episode, attention and sympathy? Um, some people are seeking control in different ways, but yeah, it's kind of hard to answer this question because there's just, it, it, it opens many more questions I have of like, what are you experiencing? Like, what's going on? Well, and I think that's where that comes in. Like again, that Venn diagram piece of is it Munchal? Is it like that Munchausen's, or are you being gaslit? Mm-hmm. Mm. And and kind of trying to have that control of a situation, but yeah, not having all that information for sure. Mila says, prior to the polls, I've never heard of this disorder. One of the reasons I love this podcast, we always get to learn something new. Reading about it sparked a few questions. Um, one of one of them was, how high do you think the rate of people being misdiagnosed with this is? Example, a lot of people struggling with endometriosis are seeing multiple doctors for years that tell them they are fine, but do at some point get diagnosed. I don't think, yeah, I'm going to answer this on all sides. I don't think many people are being diagnosed with this, period. Yeah. With fictitious disorder. So I'll say that with a period. Like, I think it's... If anything, we know it's underreported. Mm-hmm. I think what happens in our medical system, and again, there can be a lot of reasons for this due to like people working on an island, not collaborating with other professionals, things being so specialized. There's a lot of reasons why if someone can't answer the question of what your symptoms are pointing to, I think a lot of us have felt dismissed or that they'll use some sort of general term. Um, I mean, I know I was told I had anxiety over and over again <laughs> before I found out my brain was in my neck. But I think that happens a lot because people have their specialized knowledge and when they can't easily fit in any one thing, then sort of we can feel dismissed. Um, but I don't, I don't think people are assuming that you're making this up necessarily for attention or sympathy. I just think there can be pressure to sort of like put a label on it or kind of shrug your shoulders and be like, I've done all the tests I know at this time and I don't really know what else to do for you in the moment. Which part of me it feels valid, but it also feels very limiting, right? When you're the person on the other end of it, I've been on the other end. Yeah, I agree with you, Justin. My my gut reaction is I don't think there is a high rate of people being misdiagnosed with it at all. Just based on working in a hospital and doing the literature review I did, I th- it's hard to diagnose, period, but I think healthcare professionals are terrified of diagnosing it in fear of being wrong, especially um, fictitious disorder imposed on another. But I think another thing, you know, Mila, in your example, you talk about like people struggling with endometriosis, seeing multiple doctors. In that case, they're seeing multiple doctors for real symptoms. And um, I don't know. I think if it would be different if they were like, well, this doctor years ago diagnosed me with endometriosis, which wasn't true. Going back to all those red flags. Um, but I think the likelihood of somebody 
I'm not going to say it's never happened because I am sure there's someone out there that has been labeled or even like Munchausen like symptoms. Um, But I would say it's highly unlikely that people would be misdiagnosed with that. If anything, just like Justin, you said, I feel like people are more likely to be diagnosed with anxiety or somatic disorder or something like that before a fictitious disorder. She also had another question. It says, do you think that there's a chance that this disorder is just very stigmatized and could lead people to think, could lead people thinking the ones who suffer from it are just bad people and attention seeking? It makes me wonder if this could affect treatment negatively, such as the fact that not so long ago when people struggle with alcoholism, they were just being forced to get sober without any therapy. And I think that's, I think in a way, especially by proxy, especially mm-hmm. in that, um, I mean, cause like even I had to, when, when Jess did the case study, I had that feeling in my chest, even just as a human of being like, you did that to a child. Mm-hmm. And that's me being transparent. Like, I think that there is that stigma that comes with it because at the end of the day, it is abuse that's happening mm-hmm. that does coincide with a mental illness, right? Explained as an excuse. And I think that's really hard to sit in of acknowledging like, you know, this parent, this caregiver may truly be struggling with a mental illness while also on the other hand are abusing a child or someone in a vulnerable position. Mm Yeah, I completely agree with you, especially like you said, the imposed on another. Um, And I think part of the reason, especially at the beginning, we, you know, we're so, I don't want to say delicate with how we explain the Gypsy Rose case, but this is something we talked about before hitting record. If that is the picture of what fictitious disorder by proxy looks like, of course, people are going to paint a picture of bad people um exactly like you said how could somebody do this to their child um i do wonder and i don't know for me personally i feel like fictitious disorder imposed on self is probably less stigmatized um people could argue like okay attention seeking things like that but like we've already highlighted you know they're trying to get a need met it's not an excuse for the behavior but somebody just doesn't wake up one day and it's like, I am going to harm my child or I'm going to harm myself to gain sympathy. It, it, it happened for a reason or multiple Mm -hmm. reasons. And kind of taking that into Jen's question from New Jersey, when thinking about the topic of Munchausen is from, is from the news or TV and movies, but not much information as we've seen is kind of out there. Do you feel like this is because of the mental health stigma? Um, do you feel like there's something not known or understood? And so I think like when I was thinking about that, like, you know, the stigma that's associated with it for, for a lot of people to admit this, especially again, imposed on another, they have to admit to abusing their child. Mm-hmm. And I don't know many parents who willingly admit to abuse. There are, absolutely. Mm-hmm. But especially like that 
kind of over and over again piece. And I, and I think that that does play into the stigma of that. Mm -hmm. I think this is a natural consequence of sort of the mind in the general public protecting itself. Mm -hmm. Meaning, I think it's just a lot simpler and easier for most people just to say these people are bad. I think that's what the general public does. You know, I think that's what happens when there's any cases of child harm or harm in any way, you know, that could lead into a whole topic about pedophilia where again, on the outside. And of course, everyone's like, these behaviors are awful. Like you have a lot of sympathy for the victims and, it's just like I said, when Jess was reading the case study, he said, your heart sinks. Like you just, mm. oh. And if you want change to happen, you do. You have to lean into the person with the disorder. And the general public, often in these stigmatized areas, they want to live in the simplicity of, that's just a bad person. I don't care mm. about them. But as a psychologist and somebody within mental health, if we want bigger change, you have to lean in. You have to, as we always say, get curious and wonder what drives a person to do this. What drives a person to do these behaviors that none of us want to exist in our society and yet they're happening. But that's the difference from taking a lens of like mental health, scientist, let's try to fix a problem versus when you just hear news that's very disturbing and it's easy to turn your back and just say, that's just a bad person. Yeah, I think to to just expand or add on that just the way our like because i know jen you said news tv movies uh, at least i've seen this cultural shift like with any horrible thing you know mass shootings things like that it's like focus on the victim focus on the victim focus on the victim we don't want to say the perpetrator's name so if those are the messages we're getting and then just based off everything else you know We've already talked about, like, Jen, when KB, I was reading your questions, like, you know, do you feel like there's something not known or understood? Absolutely. There's a ton not known and understood. Like, and I think we've highlighted that enough. Like, we don't know the cause. We know some correlates, but it's not like, okay, you know, X, Y, or Z causes. I think it's highly misunderstood because it's, like we said, less than 1% in healthcare settings, like Justin and I said, whatever that means. Um, so there's a lot to be learned about. Mm. And um, also just given how news, TV, movies likes to do stuff, they like to sensationalize. And they're going to sensationalize the victims and they're going to paint the perpetrators as these horrible people rather than exactly like we've all been saying try to understand where they're coming from once again not an excuse i feel like we're saying that every single time but it's important to highlight well there's just one more question and then a statement um and so this last question is a really interesting question i'm kind of sad that k10 isn't here for this but Marella from Vermont says, is Justin really as ridiculous in the K10 KBI Jessica Justin group chat as he seems to be on the Instagram channel? As if you guys don't know, on our Instagram, we've started a broadcast channel, which is going to be like a mini group chat. Um, And Justin, who as much as is a millennial, 
is an absolute boomer and has shown some true colors in this group chat. So uh, the question is, is, is he as chaotic in our private chat? And the answer is yes. Chaotic. He's more chaotic. (laughs) Everybody needs someone in their life where you just don't quite know what to expect. So an extrovert. A a classic extrovert who just doesn't even realize that they're just mixing it up because their brain is just always mixing it up on their own. Mm. And that, honestly, it's just... It's just me. I don't even realize, you know, I just, it's just, I feel the pull and I go that way Mm -hmm. sometimes and I'm spontaneous. It's something that Jess has never felt in her entire life. It's never happened. She's planned every single But we are opposites. We are opposites. Oh, no, no. And I mean, I'm not even offended because like if you had me sit here and be like, Jess, what was the last spontaneous thing you do? Other than like, sometimes I'll go buy lunch instead of eating the one that I bought. I, I, brought, think, like, I think like the most spontaneous thing that Jess has done probably in the last, I, I will guess, five to seven years of her life was probably coming to Maine to meet people on the internet she never actually has met in person. Yeah, that sounds right. Is that spontaneous though? Because it was very thoroughly no. planned. Yeah, but that's very but like. But but still, I think that that was like the most maybe opposite. Yeah, we honor all personality differences. I will. I will say I will come to Justin's defense <laughs> one time and, <laughs> and say that. If you saw our group chat, it's not always Justin. Justin's just the extrovert. Get a K-10 text because she's not here to defend herself. Get a K-10 text when she's down a wormhole. Forget it. Forget it. And I'm always like, I'm glad you brought it up, K-10. But it's so specific. She's a friend that will drop. Have you ever thought about the feeling of death through a black hole? And you're like... (laughs) And I'm like, a matter of fact, I have K10, and I'm glad you you brought it here so I can discuss yep. it with you. Mm-hmm. Oh but yeah, yes. and she'll it send like just... random videos at like eleven o'clock at night. And so when I wake up at four in the morning, I'm like, what was K10 doing? Too, you're like, this is too early for this. You're like, it's too early. Oh, I know. But yes, we are all unhinged in our own way. But if you want to get a little insight. There are, what, 500 and some of us already in this little group chat. It's going to be a great mm-hmm. time. It will be chaotic. I think we'll probably throw some education. Maybe we'll throw some behind-the-scenes things in there. Every once time. in a while, why not? Let's do it. Come join us over in the broadcast channel. It'll be, it's going to be fun. But then there was this last little tidbit in, in oh our questions and I saw it and it's just, I just need to read it. So it's not related to this week's topic, but just wanted to say a huge thank you for the podcast. It's helped me so much with understanding therapy and making it less of a struggle when I see my own therapist. Hearing professional opinions on a wide range of topics before opening up about my own personal experience to my therapist has really helped as there is less of an unknown. Thank you guys and love the podcast. Great. <laughs> if you're watching yes. this on video, sorry. 
just the way you introduced that KPI, I was like, oh gosh, what random thing is going to be about Justin putting on chapstick? And then you hit us with that. That was really sweet. Thank you. I know. We love that. We, I can't explain it enough. Like we, we love your feedback and we get all kinds of feedback, you know, some of it constructive, some of it encouraging, but we do really appreciate it. We love it. And I know each one of us would say in different realms that the space of content creation, the best part is when you have somebody say, Hey, this made me think about this, or this was really helpful or helped guide me in this way. It's literally why we do this. Absolutely. Well, thank you guys for joining us this week on the podcast and this week's episode talking about fictitious disorder imposed on another. You know, we talked about the differences between all different disorders. We talked about kind of what really constitutes disorder, what really is still unknown. I mean, there's still a ton. Um, but yeah, share this episode with a friend. Share this episode with someone who might be interested in learning more about this. And rate, subscribe, go engage over on our Instagram. We lo- Again, we love to hear from you all. And we will see you next week in group therapy. Bye. Bye. Peace. <laughs>